Welcome to Antiquity in Gotham, a podcast that explores the reinterpretation, appropriation, and legacy of antiquity in New York City. Today, New Yorkers are all about great food, the new hot restaurant to eat in, the new cuisine, vegetarianism, veganism, poke bowls, everything you can think about New Yorkers are into. Well, also, New Yorkers really don't seem to like to cook. During the 19th century, restaurants began to supplement taverns as the primary venues for dining and social interaction in New York City. New York's elite, who only had once entertained at home, shifted their socializing to restaurants like Delmonico's, which had moved uptown to 42nd Street and 5th Avenue, and hotels like the Waldorf Astoria, which was located at 34th Street and 5th Avenue, where the established blue bloods of New York society and the newly minted millionaires could dine. Hotels and restaurants were kind of somewhat or quasi-public spaces, which in theory anybody could go to. But in reality, these locations were by no means accessible to all. Wealth and status determined entry. You have to have the right fashionable and typically expensive clothes, black tie or an evening gown, and the funds to afford a lavish meal of lobster and champagne, as well as the time to enjoy a late night meal. If you're going out for dinner at 10 o'clock at night, you're certainly not up at 7 a.m. sitting in front of your desk. And the public spaces of these hotels, like the Peacock Alley of the Waldorf Astoria, were stages where affluent men and finely attired women could parade on their way to dinner. Now, the rapid turnover in New York City's economic elite and the creation of new wealth also meant that at the turn of the 20th century, the opportunity to display one's old or new wealth by dining in restaurants with one's peers or with those whom one aspired to call one's peers was critical to affirm one's social status. Now, in the late 1890s, dining in New York City's nightlife started to shift away from these established restaurants and hotels along Fifth Avenue towards the Great White Way, or Broadway, as it was called. Broadway was called the Great White Way because it was illuminated by an estimated million electric lights and over towards 42nd Street, the area which would later be known as Times Square. At the turn of the 20th century, a group of restaurants known as Lobster Palaces emerged. I know, it's a great name, isn't it? Lobster Palace. Uh, The Lobster Palaces were less formal than the restaurants and hotels on Fifth Avenue and had a more um, morally and socially permissive atmosphere, shall we say? The Lobster Palaces were hyper-masculinized environments where men, bachelors or not, could enjoy the company of women. Where men, bachelors or not, could enjoy the company of women. Known for their ostentatious, over-the-top interiors and their post-theater late-night dining, many of these Lobster Palaces, such as Rector's Pompeian Room, which was created in 1914, and the Café L'Opéra, which was in operation from 1909 to 1910, used the art and architecture of the ancient world to create glitzy, opulent, and immersive dining experiences. One establishment stands out for its use of antiquity in its conceptualization and design, Murray's Roman Gardens, or which opened in 1906. Murray's Roman Gardens has not survived, so we're dependent on contemporary publications to understand how designers, architects, and artists who were involved in its construction reinterpreted antiquity to create its lavish interior. Publicity materials produced for Murray's Roman Gardens, which was owned by John L. Murray, an Irish-American restaurateur, allow us to understand how the creators behind this amazing restaurant envisioned the Rome of Nero in the early 20th century and helped to allow its patrons to dine like Nero. Murray's Roman Gardens was located at 232 West 42nd Street between 7th and 8th Avenues, and it aimed to quote-unquote create a luxurious Pompeian villa for New York's elite. It was designed by Henry Erkins, 
and the restaurant exploited Roman-inspired architecture that incorporated aspects of Greek and Egyptian decor and art and architecture to create a dining extravaganza that transported the diners back to the luxury of antiquity. The publicity materials for the restaurant, written by Charles Bevington, demonstrate a particular engagement with antiquity. And he wrote, It is possible, within the limits of this, the world's youngest metropoli, to become familiar with the beauties of ancient art in their original form. And it is not necessary for New Yorkers to visit the exhumed remains of Pompeii. At his very doors in this city's theater and hotel section, he can be transported back into ancient Rome and feast his eyes on an artistic and authentically exact reproduction of the most beautiful features of Rome's most ornate houses, of palaces, villas, and pleasure resorts of her wealthiest and most cultured citizens. Murray's Roman gardens and other establishments basically claimed that New York could compete with much older cities like London and Pompeii. And also, these publicity materials claimed something about antiquity, that Erkins was creating something better than the real thing. Murray's Roman gardens could teach New Yorkers about antiquity without ever having to leave the island of Manhattan. So in a way, you can kind of think about this a little bit as like a prototype of Disney World, in a sense of Disney can create the Wild West or create other parts of the world, think of Epcot Center, or It's a Small World, better than the actual thing. So it kind of goes to this whole point that Americans in a certain way think that you know, they can recreate antiquity and do a better job about it than others. It also is important to note that New Yorkers, in a sense, also see themselves as interpreters and inheritors of the classical past. The publicity documents also proclaimed that the production of antiquity was realistic and derived, quote, largely from the originals in the form of direct copies, casts of the decorative features of the homes of one of the most lavishly luxurious of the world's ancient peoples, the Romans of the Caesarean period adapted to the embellishment of a modern place of entertainment, the reconstruction from original models, authentic records, and of the artistic splendor and ornate surrounding of a Roman residence at the period of the imperial city's greatest opulence and magnificence. So one of Murray's claims to fame was that its depiction of antiquity was genuine. The architecture of Murray's Roman gardens was based on Edward Bulwark-Lytton's description of Pompeii. Now, he wrote The Last Days of Pompeii. This was one of the 19th century's best-selling novels. It was translated into multiple languages, but it was what Murray's Roman Gardens used as one of its reference points. And uh, in this book, there was a description of Glaucus's Pompeian house, which was based on the house of the tragic poet. Interestingly enough, the emperor who was held up as uh, the kind of model was Nero, who, for many of you who are Roman historians or who teach classical history. He's one of those quintessential bad emperors. He murders his mother. He murders Seneca. Or he makes Seneca commit suicide, I should say. He's a baddie. But here, Nero is praised. Nero ruled over Rome when its wealth and luxury were at their zenith. Although he is reported to have been an indifferent spectator to the burning of a considerable part of the town, it is shrewdly suggested that he was interested, rather in the opportunity, the conflagration offered for improvements rather than the loss it entailed. In other words, while Nero might have watched the city of Rome while it burned, and he's an immensely problematic historical figure, he was an architectural pioneer, uh, as the remains from the Domus Aria on the Oppian Hill and these discoveries recently of the famed rotating dining room on the Palatine Hill affirm. So in other words, here, Nero is rehabilitated as an emperor with excellent taste, artistic vision, and under whom Rome kind of reached its artistic and architectural and luxurious apex. So as a result, 
it's really a suitable model. This is interesting. This is in contrast to many of the earlier stories and perceptions of Rome. Many Americans throughout the 19th century were really concerned about using Rome as a model because of course there was the fall and decline of the Roman Empire. And with that fall and decline of the Roman Empire, Americans were worried about this. But by the end of the 19th century, many Americans thought that the United States of America was historically exceptional and was exempt from the decline that all previous empires had experienced. Thus, at the end of the 19th century, Rome, in a sense, could be consumed as a form of imperial pleasure uh, without a concern of decline. New York was a new Rome, and Pompeii was recast as the equivalent of Newport, Rhode Island where Newport's famed cottages found parallels in the houses and villas of Pompeii. So I can't talk today about all of the various different rooms that were created, but I've put some extra materials up on the show notes, as well as links to Bevington's publication, where you can see all of these. So what I'd like to do today is talk about the main dining room, where one could dine like Nero. The main dining room is a purposeful, original combination of genuine, but often disparate, ancient elements. Scholars have observed that the main dining room replicated an atrium, the entry hall of a Roman house. But I wonder, in light of the restaurant's name, Murray's Roman Gardens, and its extensive use of foliage, especially vines, whether in fact the restaurant aimed, at least in its main dining room, to evoke a Roman garden. There was a sky blue ceiling with electric stars, and the walls were decorated with creepers and plants. At the center of the dining room, there was a huge fountain whose central feature was a Roman barge. The barge was decorated with mosaics, as was the basin of the fountain. The ancient source or inspiration for the fountain barge is not noted, but I kind of think immediately of the luxurious barges that emperors like Nero and other Romans enjoyed on the Bay of Naples, which are obviously well attested in the literary sources and were also known from Caligula's barges, which he used on Lake Nemi, which is in central Italy, just south of Rome. These pleasure barges, like those of earlier Hellenistic kings, were lavishly decorated with plantings, sculptures, and furnishing. So their inclusion at Murray's Roman Gardens helped to create this recreational environment where New York's elite could dine and socialize like Romans did in their villas and gardens on the Bay of Naples. Atop the barge was a tholos, a circular building, and there's some pictures of this on the website so you can see what I was talking about. And there are four female statues that supported the sphere inside this tholos. Uh, at the steps leading to the tholos were several female sphinxes who are quite sexualized. They have very pert breasts, they're crowned and veiled, and they sit upright at attention as if they're going to protect the barge. Here, in a sense, a whole Roman exterior has been brought inside as plantings and vines that adorned the architecture transport the diner to the luxurious world of Pompeii and Rome. This is a kind of original, unexpected, playful aspect of the room. Think about it, you're outside running around in the hustle and bustle and grime of New York City. You come through a grand foyer and then you walk up and instead find yourself in an ancient Roman garden. Now, while Murray's Roman gardens touted itself as a genuinely informed Roman restaurant, the main dining room was not, strictly speaking, a Roman or Pompeian room. Located adjacent to the barge fountain was a tall column with an eagle. Such columns were honorific or triumphant monuments that were erected in public spaces of Roman and Greek cities, not in a private garden of a Roman villa or house. To learn more a little bit about monuments, um, you should go listen to the episode on the Column of Columbus and Columbus Circle. But perhaps more surprising, in this room anyway, was the balcony, which was supported by replicas of the Caryatids, who came from the Erechtheion, which is one of the most famous buildings from the Greek city of Athens. Now, the presence of the Caryatids are not explained in the publicity materials, 
but they're amongst the most iconic, well-known sculptures from antiquity. So their inclusion was an obvious way to signal the antiquity and authenticity of such spaces, even if they were not Roman in any sense or shape. The main dining room's decoration was then completed through the use of wall paintings that served, quote, as the background recalling a vista of the Bay of Naples, unquote. So one painting was entitled A View in a Pompeian Garden, and it was composed of tall cypress trees, a hallmark of the Italian landscape. And set amongst these tall arbors were Ionic and Corinthian columns that supported two-winged victories, standing on orbs, and an ancient Greek Tankara figure, and a marble crater. If one was dining and one looked at these surroundings, one could see the elegance and the opulence of antiquity. There is also a reclining, sleeping female figure who looks like Ariadne, who is dressed in heavily folded drapes of fabric in a fairly sensual and erotic way, which seems to underscore the ethos of pleasure that runs through all aspects of the room. Another unnamed wall painting focuses on a vista of the villa balcony with winged victories, elaborate architecture, and an artist's rendering of what appears to be the Bay of Naples. This painting, framed behind four Corinthian columns, is flanked on the left by an amphora and on the right by Venus, who covers herself somewhat modestly and is accompanied by a dolphin. The painting focuses on a balcony scene with scantily clad women. In the center is a nude woman who stretches her arms upward, exposing her breasts and entire figure to the viewer. To her left is an Egyptian woman who is either nude or in a fine diaphanous gown who plays the flute, while behind her is a modestly dressed woman who plays what appears to be a tambourine. These women are being watched by two reclining clothed men who rest on a daybed which sits on an oriental style carpet. These men are like the diners in the restaurant. They gaze upon the women, enjoying their physical beauty without shame or consequence. Because these women belonged to antiquity, they could be objectified and their physical charms enjoyed by the male diners. This continued throughout other paintings that were located in Murray's Roman Gardens as well. The objectification of women continued in other paintings throughout Murray's Roman Gardens. Now this depiction of women was very much in keeping with the attitudes towards many of the women which the men would bring to dine in such locations. They brought actresses, chorus girls, or their mistress rather than their wives. A chorus girl was deemed to be a highly desirable female companion for an evening out. Actresses held a socially complex position at the start of the 20th century. Sometimes they were celebrated and esteemed for their beauty and talents, but other times they were looked down upon as morally loose and socially inferior. If a woman of high standing did come to a lobster palace like Murray's Roman Gardens, they only did so in suitably modest attire, lest they be mistaken for an actress or mistress. But indeed, Murray's Roman Gardens, like so many lobster palaces, had private rooms where men could have discreet indiscretion. These wall paintings contributed to the atmosphere of luxury, but they also helped to reinforce the idea that Murray's Roman Gardens, like so many other lobster palaces, was, as scholar Lewis Ernburn has noted, a decidedly masculine environment. This was a place where women of certain backgrounds and social statuses could be consumed and discarded. It was in establishments like Murray's Roman Garden that men like Stanford White entertained their mistresses while their wives were ensconced at home. Indeed, in Murray's Roman Gardens, New York's elites, especially men, could celebrate and enjoy aspects of life that were similar to those that they perceived the Roman elite could experience in their villas on the Bay of Naples or in the Pompeian home. Like the fast crowd that played hard in these rooms, it was not to last. In the 1920s, 
part of Murray's room and gardens was remodeled to become Hubert's museum, which included a freak show, a penny arcade, and the world, and a world-famous flea circus that was in operation until about 1965. The top floor, the Pompeian Gardens, survived somewhat intact until 1996, when the whole building was demolished to become Madame Tussard's Wax Museum. Somewhat fittingly, this Roman fantasy of a restaurant was replaced by two museums where spectacle also reigned. Thank you for joining us this week on Antiquity in Gotham, and we'll see you soon. This podcast was supported by a grant from the Classical Association of the Atlantic States. If you want to learn more about that organization, please visit them at caas-cw.org 